Father in heaven, thank you so much for the morning which we know comes along with a renewed measure of your mercy and your grace towards us. If it were not for you, we would be nothing. And so now as we spend a thoughtful moment contemplating the words of Christ, speak to us. May Christ, through the person of the Holy Spirit, move in each one of our hearts. And as we try to grapple with spiritual things and how those spiritual things impact us in a practical, personal, real way, help us to find something that we can apply as we go home from this mountaintop experience, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As you already know, my wife and I have a blog called savingthecrumbs.com, and some of the leaders in the back say, hey, these are the crumbs. You guys are the crumbs. So we're saving the crumbs here this morning. But the interesting story behind the name, there's actually two stories behind the name. The first one is more the practical side, and that is when my wife and I first got married, early on in our marriage, we wanted to bake our own bread. We wanted to save money, right? So let's bake our own bread. And we were using a bread maker, and we had recipes, and they weren't all turning out properly. And so when we were slicing the bread on the cutting board, frequently, at first, we would end up with a mound of crumbs. And what do we normally do with crumbs on the cutting board? You just sort of swipe them off into the garbage disposal or in the trash, and you wash them away, right? Well, my wife realized, you know, we're going to be experimenting with a lot of recipes, so we need to think of some resourceful way to deal with these crumbs. So she would keep them in a little Tupperware container, put them in the freezer, and a lot of loaves of bread were coming out of our kitchen, and before long, she perfected the recipe, but before we got to that point, we ended up with a little healthy container full of crumbs, and it ended up being worthwhile to use those crumbs to create another dish with. And so, when we were trying to come up with a name for this blog about personal finance and frugal living and saving money and all that, we realized, hey, this is the perfect illustration. Saving the crumbs, the little bits that we might let go to waste, put together may end up being something worthwhile and valuable. So that's one of the stories that, lead, that led to us uh, calling our, our blog Saving the Crumbs. But there's a second reason, and the second reason is based on the verse in Scripture that we're going to meditate on today. Anyone want to venture a guess? Okay, so even the dogs eat the crumbs off the master's table. That's really good. What, what's the other guess? Uh, that was yours? You guys are really sharp. That's not the story, though. <laughs> Let's turn our Bibles to the book of John. John chapter 6, and see if you can figure out from the verse we're going to read, or the passage we're going to read, what the title of our message is this morning, and also why we ended up calling our blog Saving the Crumbs. Let's take a look at verse 5. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? 
Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the people sat down in number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. And verse 12, this is the key. Listen carefully. Wake up. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, what should they do? Gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. What's another way of putting that? Save the crumbs. Amen. Verse 13, therefore they gathered up and filled how many baskets? Twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which are left over by those who had eaten. Notice Jesus was very sanitary. He saved the bread, but not the fish. Just an interesting side note, because it wouldn't last the trip home. But John 6, verse 12, was the, the biblical reason or the biblical uh, story that helped us come up with this name. Saving the crumbs. Ah, that's perfect. Why? Because Jesus was a crumb saver. Jesus was a frugal man. And this story illustrates that to us. So I want to focus in on this thought. Gather up the fragments that nothing that remain so that nothing is lost. And so for the balance of our time together, I just want to focus on five lessons that we can learn from this story. Five lessons from Jesus' words, gather up the fragments, which happens to be the title of this message this morning. Gather up the fragments. And the first lesson is the most obvious surface level on the nose lesson. Jesus is telling us, don't waste. Don't be wasteful. Be resourceful. Be frugal. Be uh, economical. Ben Franklin once said, watch the pennies and the dollars will take care of themselves. I've heard that statement. So in the same way, just like we gathered the crumbs from the cutting board, even though it seemed insignificant, just like Jesus gathering up the little bits from the multitude may seem insignificant in and of itself, Put together, it's no longer insignificant. And you know, today we live in a culture of waste. You know, I like the imagery. I read it somewhere online once. And the imagery is so vivid is that our lives are constant exploding volcanoes of waste. If we can just see there's a long trail of not just pollution, but trash and wasted stuff, resources, that we have not put to the best use. Just for an example, how many pairs of shoes do you have in your closet? Right? I'm a man, and I have more pairs of shoes than I can count. We just put some shoes to the thrift store before we came on this trip, and I still have more pairs of shoes than I can hopefully ever wear out. And not only that, this idea of waste in our society now, it's We try to isolate ourselves from it. So we buy these nice packages, right, from the store. We rip it open. We throw it in the trash. And then we take the trash out. But when we take the trash out, the trash man comes with a big truck with an automatic arm that picks up the trash, and we never see it again. We don't have to dig a hole. We don't have to have a burn pile. We don't have to compost our scraps from the kitchen because 
The waste is shipped off, isolated from us. And so we don't really understand just how much we waste. And so we come into, uh, or we live in a consumerist society, and we often are told, you deserve more. You should have more stuff. You should buy this. You should buy that. But in, in essence, we have more than enough. We just need to gather up the fragments. You know, we love to complain about the price of gas. And gasoline is one of those things that is a good illustration of this because we feel the dollars at the pump, but then we complain about how expensive gas is while we sit there idling the car, burning the gas, going nowhere. We have a disconnect, and Jesus is telling us, let's remember something. The resources given to us are all talents to be increased, not to be wasted. And I want to uh, share this passage with you from the book Desire of Ages, page 368, paragraph 1. We're going to refer back to this several times. So if you have, you know, your electronic devices where you have the Ellen White um, books on there, you may want to look this up and follow along. Desire of Ages, page 368, paragraph 1. We're going to come back to this a couple times. It says, But he who had all the resources of infinite power at his command said, Gather up the fragments that remain that nothing be lost. These words meant more than putting the bread into baskets. The lesson was twofold. Nothing is to be wasted. Lesson number one, right? Do not be wasteful. Nothing is to be wasted. We are to let slip no temporal advantage. We should neglect nothing that will tend to the benefit of a human being. Let everything be gathered up that will relieve the necessity of earth's hungry ones. We're going, to move our, we're going to move along through this passage because this passage here contains most of the five lessons that we're going to be talking about. But that first one, I'm not going to belabor the point. I think it's obvious enough. Jesus says, don't be wasteful. And right here, the desire of ages, Ellen White says, nothing is to be wasted. It's just, bam, obvious. But this statement, I want to go back to how it starts, how it describes Jesus Okay, how it characterizes the man who gave the command to gather up the fragments. What does it say? But he who had the resources of infinite power at his command said, gather up the fragments, then nothing be lost. Do you see the contrast here of what Ellen White is saying? On one hand, the statement that Jesus says is, gather up the fragments that nothing remain. But this is not a homeless person saying, look, you better save that because I'm starving. This is a person, Jesus, who has the power of infinite power. He has an abundance. He's the man who produced all that food, and he says, don't waste that. Well, let me put it another way. How much more bread could Jesus have produced? Would there have been a limit to what he could have created? There's no limit. So why would a person that has the absolute abundance at his fingertips tell his disciples to go through the trouble of picking up the crumbs? There's a lesson here. The lesson is having an abundance is no excuse to be wasteful. Because Jesus, of all people, had the excuse to waste. Because he could say, I'll just make more. 
I made it all anyway. It all belongs to me anyway, right? He could have said that, but he's trying to teach us through the example of his disciples a lesson, and that is just because we can doesn't mean we should waste. And how often now when we think about our lives, we think about, oh, let's just, it's more convenient if I just throw it away, or I'll just buy more, or I just won't be as economical because it's just a little bit. Oh, famous last words, but I can't afford it. Can we really sometimes? What's the big deal of wasting a little food when I eat out? Barely dents my budget. What's the big deal for me to idle my gas-guzzling SUV or have a couple extra cars lying around that I don't need? I make enough money. It's okay to waste a little bit, right? But let me just put this into perspective. You know, sometimes we think of ourselves in terms of what we see on TV, you know, YouTube ads, you know, the life of the rich and the famous. And we think, oh, but we're not, we don't have an overflowing abundance, right? We're not like Jesus. We don't have infinite power, perhaps. But just think with me for a moment. A couple hundred years ago, compared to a couple hundred years ago, we lived better lives than even the kings and royalty of the medieval ages. Especially in Southern California. On any given night of the week, we can select any type of cuisine from any country in the world that we want to partake of. We just take off and we just pick whatever food we want to eat, and there are armies of waiters competing to serve you. Whereas kings, just several hundred years ago, they couldn't even have that luxury. And how are we conveyed to the place of dining? The kings of the medieval ages, they might have chariots lined with the pelts of dead animals, drawn by horses and carriages, perhaps. But now today, how are we conveyed? We have chariots of our own, powered by the juice of dead dinosaurs, right? <laughs> lined with the skins of dead animals. Not only that, we now ride in little boxes where we can control the weather inside. I know you drove up here and it was 110 degrees down the mountain and you had air conditioning in your car. If that's not controlling the weather, I don't know what is. <laughs> and just think, let's take this one step further. If you have one of these things, you don't even need to own your own car. You just download Uber, you press a button, and a car shows up and chauffeurs you to wherever you want to go. And you don't even have to pay with cash out of your wallet. You press a button. Think what the medieval kings and royalty of hundred, several hundred years ago would think if they realized the common folk would live this way. They're going to say, what kind of sorcery is this? We live with an overabundance of goods, resources, and blessings. And Jesus is telling us it is no excuse to waste and then these devices that we can hail a car out of thin air, we say, oh, hmm, 
I need a new one every two years. Right? These are supercomputers. We must be like curing cancer and solving world hunger with these things, right? But we sit on the toilet watching YouTube videos. <laughs> we have an overflowing abundance. And Jesus himself is described as the one with infinite power. He has far more than we'll ever have. And he said, gather up the fragments. So we've got our smartphones, we've got Uber, we've got our computers, we've got the internet, we've got all and more than we need, all the luxuries that the kings of old could only dream of, and we waste it. John D. Rockefeller, I've heard this mentioned before, John D. Rockefeller is the richest American in his generation in the 1930s, and some say he was the richest man, American of all time, adjusted for inflation. They say that his... Net worth is over $300 billion in today's dollars. That was less than 100 years ago, 1930s. And you and I, middle class, middle class uh, members of society, we live a better life than him. We can travel to any country of the world. We can book our own plane tickets. The health care, the amenities, education, the luxuries in the house, like a flushing toilet, he didn't even have that, and he was worth over $300 billion in today's money. We have an overflow of abundance. And it's a matter of perspective. The perspective is that if we have so much, it, is, it, may, be, it may look like license for us to be wasteful. It's like, so? There's so much left over. There's enough for everybody, so... Why does it matter if I'm not, you know, taking care of the, the crumbs? But the other perspective, which is what I believe Jesus is trying to tell us, is that the abundance that he has given into our care is for the benefit of others. And so because we have been given much, much more is required of us. Jesus had the power to create unlimited food. He had no lack. He had an abundance and it would have saved him more time. It would have been less hassle, less frustration to create more on demand than to send his disciples out to gather the leftovers. And so he's telling us there is no excuse. There is no excuse. We are the wealthiest, yet most wasteful generation who has ever walked the earth. And Jesus says to us, gather up the fragments. Lesson, that was lesson number two. Lesson number one, don't waste. Lesson number two, abundance is no excuse. Lesson number three, learn to be content. Because think about it. Jesus could have made a 10, 15, 20-course meal, couldn't he? He could have made any type of food, as much variety, as fancy as he wanted. That's not what he gave the multitude, was it? It was barley loaves and fish. Simple, wholesome food that met the needs of the people, and he left it at that. He provided for their physical needs, yes, but he didn't cater to extravagance. That's the other lesson. The Bible tells us that your bread and water shall be sure. Amen? 
It does not say your Panera bread and coconut water shall be sure. There's a difference. When I was in high school, I got my first job. And there was a minimum wage job back then. It was $5.25 an hour, $5.75, something like that. And as any, uh, you know, normal teenager who gets his first paycheck, what do you think I was thinking about? Spending it, yes. And I wanted a pair of basketball shoes. Didn't play basketball, but I wanted basketball shoes. <laughs> and that's actually a, a little bit of a lesson is, you know, why do you think I wanted basketball shoes? What do you think all my friends were wearing? Jordans, exactly. And so I calculated in my head, okay, $5.75. How many hours will I have to work to, to be able to afford a $50 pair of shoes? 10 hours. Yeah, okay, I can do that. And then I wanted uh, a, another video game. I'm a recovered video game addict. But at the time, I was avidly into games. $80 game. Okay, how many hours is that going to be? And then a camera. Oh, yeah, all my friends are getting cameras. Okay. Sunglasses, even though I can't wear them because I have, you know, prescription. <laughs> Sunglasses. Okay, and, and okay, new pair of jeans, right? Oh, yeah, I'm going to get my driver's license soon, so, yeah, I want a car. So pretty soon, right, it was very quick for me to dream up things that I needed to buy that vastly outstripped my capacity to earn money to pay for. You understand that reasoning? And you know what that's called? That's called the American dream. <laughs> Isn't that true? The American dream that's foisted upon us now is you can have anything you want and you don't have to pay for it. Just swipe the credit card and we'll come after you later. Or another way to put it is the American dream is simply now a perpetual state of discontent. And Jesus is teaching the lesson be content with what you've got. Yes, I could have given them a 10-course feast with delicacies and pastries and vegan cookies. But he didn't. Be satisfied with having your needs met is what Jesus is trying to tell us. And the problem I really have to drill in this point is that this goes contrary to everything we hear in the media, in society, everywhere we look. Everything is calculated. I mean, marketing, that's what marketing is scientifically trying to do, is to create in you a desire, if I can say, a lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, for us to desire and want things that we don't need. It is creating the sense of discontent and everything we have permeated with it. And so Jesus' lesson here just cannot be lost, and that is contentment is a character attribute. And if we are not going to resist the tie that is pressing in upon us, we are not going to reflect fully the image of Jesus. Jesus was a man, yes. He had at his disposal all the riches of heaven, but he became a servant. But he showed us the example of being content. So we're told, buy this, it'll make you happy. Spend money on this, it'll make you prettier. Spend this on this membership, it'll make you more attractive. Discontentment is what people are trying to foist upon us when all we're doing is breaking the 10th commandment. 
Isn't that what covetousness is? Wanting something that we don't have. And discontentment is the root of that. P.T. Barnum once said, money is a very excellent servant, but a terrible master. Money can be used to great good. This is what Ellen White says. Christ's Object Lessons, page 351, paragraph 3. But money is of no more value than sand, only as it is put to use in providing the necessities of life, blessing others, and advancing the cause of Christ. And so let us be content. And the Bible also says, 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, I'll just quote it quickly, you don't need to turn there. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It is better to have a little and be content with it than to have everything in the world but be unhappy and discontent all the time. I really want to drill this point home, so turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, uh, this is where we read a very uh, famous passage, okay? We're going to start with Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. You already know it by heart, probably. What does it say? Amen. I can do how much? All things through Christ who strengthens me. So we read this verse and we apply it to all sorts of circumstances. Overcoming some addiction, I can do all things. Overcoming some obstacle in my life, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I need to pass this exam. I need to, you know, overcome this dilemma in my life. Yes, overcome the sin. Yes, I can do all things. But what's Paul really saying? Let's look at verse 11. Let's take a look at the context, okay? What is Paul specifically identifying? And I'm not saying we can't claim that promise for other things, but verse 11, let's read. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? Content. Content. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Verse 13 then says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So specifically, what is it that Paul is able to do through Christ who strengthens him? Have a spirit of what? Contentment. And notice Paul here is saying, implying rather, that this is one of the most difficult things that we need victory over. That's what he's implying. He's saying, I've learned to do this. I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Whether I'm hungry, whether I'm full. Whether I'm abased, whether I abound. Whether I have a lot, whether I have nothing. In all situations, I have learned to be content. And you know what? It is such a difficult thing. I have to claim that promise that only through Christ can I have that spirit of contentment. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us. In the feeding of the 5,000, gather up the fragments that remain. Do not be discontent. Jesus might have given one servant five talents and another ta- a servant two talents and another servant one talent. Part of the lesson, I believe, of the parable of the talents is not merely to improve the talents, but to be content with the talents we've been given and to do our utmost even though we may only have one, and that guy over there's got five. Let's learn to be content. Lesson number four. 
Well, let's, let's review real quick. We don't have the slides. I'm trying to be nice to our AV crew so we don't have technical issues with the slides. But let's review the, the three points so far. Lesson number one, don't be wasteful, be resourceful. Lesson number two, and in abundance, having an abundance is no excuse. Lesson number three, learn to be content. You know, I have a few minutes. Let me just mention this one thing, and that is learning to be content does not mean we have to deprive ourselves of all that is necessary for health and comfort. If you were in my seminar, you've heard this already. Let me just make, I'll just read this one statement. Avenus Home, page 379, paragraph 2. It says, we cannot make the heart purer or holier by clothing the body in sackcloth or depriving the home of all that ministers to comfort, taste, or convenience. Let me mention that one more time. We cannot make ourselves our hearts purer or holier by clothing the body in sackcloth or depriving the home of all that ministers to comfort, taste, or convenience. So what is Ellen White saying? God, through Ellen White saying, is that yes, we should be content with what we have, but we are not earning any merit by self-flagellation, by depriving our families of comforts and necessities to take care of them, right? So there's a balance here. Yes, be content, but it's not to say, less, the less I have, the holier I am. That's, that's salvation by works. Let's not go there. Lesson number four. Back to that quote I read earlier that began, but he who had the resources of infinite power of his command. Okay, Jesus says, gather up the fragments. Nothing is to be wasted. We are to let slip no temporal advantage. Why? Why should we not waste? Here's the answer. We should neglect nothing that will tend to the benefit of a human being. Let everything be gathered up that will relieve the necessity of earth's hungry ones. You see, we are not to save merely to hoard up. We're not to be a Scrooge. We're not to be, you know, stashing up in barns and bigger barns, right? Like the rich fool where God says, you fool tonight, your soul be required of thee. The purpose for being economical is so that we have more to assist those that don't have. Here's another, here's another statement. Ministry of Healing, page 206, paragraph 2. Many despise economy, confounding it with stinginess and narrowness. And that's a risk. Right? People who just want to save and save and save and save, it's, there's a word, it's miserly. They're being a Scrooge. They're being cheap. They're being stingy. Right? She says a lot of people think economy is just being stingy. But Ellen White says, no, no, no. Economy is consistent with the broadest liberality. Indeed, without economy, there can be no true liberality. And she makes it very clear. We are to save that we may give. Jesus was a brilliant marketer <laughs> because listen to what he did, right? Think about it. He has 12 baskets of leftovers. What did he do with that? He saved it for who? The people took the leftovers home. And what do you think they did when they got home? They sat down with the rest of their family who were not on the mountainside and they said, you would not believe what happened today. 
And as a result, what happens to the gospel message that Jesus was teaching? It spread. Jesus was brilliant with his marketing strategy that day. He said, gather up the leftovers, take home what you want. Share it with those who weren't here today and tell them what you saw. Tell them what you heard me teach and teach them about the kingdom of heaven. There's a friend of mine. Well, before I get there, before I get there, let me tell you another story. There is a story about a lady by the name of Gladys Holm. She lived in the city of Chicago, and she died in the year 1996 as an elderly lady. And for her whole life, she worked as the executive secretary for a CEO of a corporation based in Chicago. And her peak pay was $15,000 a year. Of course, with inflation and everything, I think that is probably closer to 30000 40000 today. But still, not massive sums of money. And uh, as, as a woman in Chicago, she was single. She didn't really have heirs or family or anything like that, but she loved to go visit children in the children's hospital, the Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. And she became known as the teddy bear lady because she would always bring teddy bears with her to give to the children in the children's hospital. And when she died in 1996, there was a small funeral with just a handful of friends who were there. And she had left in her will some money for a meal for them across the street at her favorite restaurant, and she told them, remember the happy thoughts. No children, no heirs. And so passed to the grave, seemingly conspicuously forgotten in history forever, Ms. Gladys Holm, until a short while later, her estate attorney came to the office of the president of the children's hospital. And he told the president, he said, Ms. Holm had left you a gift in her will. Guess how much it was? What was that? Several million? Anyone want to venture another guess? That's close. It was for $18 million. And this woman was not miserly. She was known to have a very vivacious, you know, personality. She had, you know, her friends that she would go out with, but she was extremely economical. But she didn't save it for herself. She lived in a small apartment. She had one car. She did not waste the money for herself. And there's more to the story. After the president of that children's hospital picked himself up off the floor, he said, there's got to be some mistake. The lawyer said, no, we have done our due diligence. We've checked everything. The accounts are clear. Here's the check. And they did a little digging, and they realized through the years, there had been anonymous checks coming into the children's hospital paying for the worst charity cases. They never knew where the money came from, but putting dots together, they realized that Ms. Gladys Holm, under the spy, right, as a spy, under the pretense of being the teddy bear lady, was doing espionage. She went in to investigate who were the truly needy cases, and then she would go home, write a check anonymously, send it in, and pay for all the bills. 
to the best of my knowledge, she was not a Christian lady, certainly not an Adventist lady. But she understood this lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us. We have more than enough. And whatever abundance that we do have, it's not for us to spend for ourselves. There are people who need this. And Jesus himself, he, he used as an example, take this food home. It's not going to be for me and my disciples. We don't have a lot of money, but you take it and you tell some, someone else about what I have done for you. And you know, yesterday I mentioned this in my seminar as well. Some of you were there. How often we as the children of God, or let me put it this way, how often the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. While there is an abundance around us, we are trapped still under the bondage of debt. As perhaps for many of us as young students or soon-to-be graduates, we say, we want to do something for God, but I've got all this student loan. What am I going to do? How am I going to help someone else when I need help myself? And how often the, the, the vivacious look in the eyes of students going in to get trained for the service of God, they leave school cynical, jaded, depressed, stressed out, beaten down because, Lord, I want to serve you, but I need help right now. But you know, there are those who are doing it. Let me give you another example. This is a friend of mine. Some of you probably know who he is. Medical student, graduated from Loma Linda Medical School. He ate beans and rice all the way through school, worked hard, paid off his loans quickly, got his residency, fellowship. He's an emergency room physician today. And instead of just expanding his life more and more and more and more, he tries to work as little as he can to pay the bills, and the rest of his time he dedicates to ministry. He bought a house, but he bought a house not for himself. He takes care of his elderly, infirmed grandmother. Total care, paying for in-home care, everything. He, everything that he earns goes to help someone else. And every natural disaster, typhoons, earthquakes in Haiti, you know, uh, in Philippines, Fukushima in Japan, earthquake in China, Ebola crisis. I mean, he's there because he has arranged his life in such a way. His talents is employed. His resources are, are put to such efficient use that whatever he does is for the kingdom of heaven. And yes, perhaps we might not be in that same situation right now. We might not be able to do what he does, but the, the same way of thinking should be the same. God, you've given me so much. How can I live most economically? How can I be more content so that as much of this abundance can be employed for the service of the kingdom of God? Jesus, we want you to come soon, and I don't want my money to delay your coming. I want it to hasten your coming. And so Jesus is teaching us this lesson. Don't waste, but not just to be miserly, to be stingy, but to help others. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 156, paragraph 1. It says, Brethren, awake from your life of selfishness and act like consistent Christians. The Lord requires you to economize your means and let every dollar not needed for your comfort to flow into the treasury. That's pretty direct. So we've talked about four lessons so far. We're coming down to the last one. 
Don't waste. Abundance is no excuse. Learn to be content and save in order to give. And you say, yeah, that's nice, but I really am struggling. Some of you might be. I don't want to put you down. That's not my intent. I'm I'm trying to hold up the standard and the ideal for which to strive for. And this fifth point is for those of us who need help. John chapter 6 and verse 8. Before Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes for uh, the masses, before there were fragments to be gathered up, they had no resources. There was nothing at hand. How are we going to buy enough bread for all of these people? Even 200 denarii is not enough that everyone might have a bite. And Andrew, verse 8, John 6. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. And notice what he adds. Here's five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Some of us here might be struggling with debt. And we look at our feeble crumbs in our savings account. We say, what are these among so many? We might be sick where we feel like I can't hold down a steady job. I'm still in school or I don't have the training or I have a bad situation in which someone else, you know, has hurt me or I'm in a position in which I myself am in distress. And we look at ourselves and we say, what am I? Among so many, what do I have that's worth anything? I cannot hope to claw myself out of this hole. It's a dark pit. Financial distress is one of the biggest causes of divorce, yes, of depression also, of stress at least. And we say, what do I have that is worth anything among so many? We have to put food on the table, children to raise, a roof to put over their heads, their stress pressing in, expectations, the bills are piling up, and we say, I can't do it. There are 5,000 mouths to feed, and I've got five barley loaves. Lord, what am I going to do? Lesson number five is use what you got. Bring what you have to Jesus and let him multiply your loaves and fishes. That's lesson number five. Jesus can bless your loaves and fishes too. He is still in the business of multiplying our meager resources so that we might be of greater service to him. I want to share with you in closing my story. I'm running out of time here, but when I was, when, after my wife and I got married, I decided I wanted to go back to graduate school. And I knew I didn't want to get into debt. And so we were talking about what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We have to live, but I also have to pay. I was going to Southern Adventist University, Adventist School. It's not cheap. Graduate program. And so we decided we're going to do our best to work our way through it. So my wife got a job with a local nonprofit, didn't pay a whole lot of money, but enough to pay the bills. But I still had tuition to worry about. What was I going to do? But before I get to that part of the story, I have to set the stage. In the year 2010, my wife and I got married in October of 2010. My wedding date is very easy to remember. It was October 10, 2010, so 10, 10, 10. 
But that previous summer, it was the GC session in Atlanta, you remember, and we were going there. And so as we were going to Atlanta, we drove through Southern, College Dale, and I stopped in to visit with my, uh, my advisor uh, in the business department where I was getting my degree, submitted some paperwork, get to meet them before I started my program in the fall or in uh, the winter semester. And as I walked into the office and I was talking with the registrar and I was getting to know her and I was talking a little bit, a voice calls out from across the office said, hey, you, me? And an elderly gentleman came running over with a big smile on his face. He looked at us. He said, were you driving down uh, Interstate 75 South yesterday? Were you in a white Honda Accord? Did you have a license plate cover that says Spreen Honda Loma Linda on it? My car was purchased in Loma Linda. And I looked at him. I thought, this is strange. (laughs) I said, well, yes. This is what he said. He said, yesterday my wife and I were on the freeway driving, and we saw you. And she wasn't my wife at the time, but my fiancé. And my wife and I looked at each other and said, and they saw the Loma Linda plates, those must be Avenus Young people heading to the GC. And somehow we must have looked the part. (laughs) Praise God if that's the case. But he looked at us and he, it, it lodged in his mind. He said, I recognized you when you walked into my office, that you were that couple that we saw on the road yesterday. And he was the dean of the business department. We walked out of the office that day looking at each other and saying, we think there's something to this divine appointment. Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. That was July, October, we get married. Uh, January, we land in cold, winter, dreary College Dale, Tennessee. I'm starting my master's program, and I'm, we're in a basement of a friend's house. We, couldn't, we haven't found a place to rent because I didn't have a job. My wife at that point had just got a job, and so we were looking for a place to rent. We didn't know how much we could afford. Are we going to have to pull out from our savings to pay for graduate school? Am I going to have to end up getting a student loan anyway? Am I going to have to be a Walmart greeter to make ends meet? What am I going to have to do? And I was in this dark, cold, dungy, dark basement doing accounting homework. Like, there is no lower place you can be. When I got an email... It was the dean of the business school. One line, are you looking for a job? I thought, what? Immediately I called him or wrote him back. I said, yeah. He said, come in right now. I went to to his office. This was already a week into the semester. He sat me down, and long story short, there was a new graduate assistantship position opening, working for him. And I was the first name that came to mind. And that position paid for my entire education. There were some sacrifices to be made. I couldn't finish in the time allotted. I had to work all my breaks, right? I had to stay long after the semester was over, start before the semester started. I had to work and study all through the summer. Those are my five loaves and fishes. I didn't have a ton of money. I was willing to work, though. I was willing to extend my course, right? Instead of finishing in whatever number of months, I had to take fewer classes, work longer, more semesters. It took a a little bit longer to finish the program. But that was me giving to Jesus my five loaves and two fish and saying, Lord, you multiply them. I don't know what to do. 
And when we chose to be you know, faithful to him and to be willing to put forth the work, God is able to take what we have and multiply it to meet the need. So I don't know what your situation is. God may not, he will not, certainly answer in exactly the way he answered for us. But he has a thousand ways for you to provide for you of which we know nothing. But the lesson is, what do you have in your hands? And the, the message we've heard all weekend, there's only one thing to do with what we've got, and that's to surrender it all to Jesus. And he will supply our lack. Yes, how we manage our money is an important aspect of our character. And Jesus, through this lesson, or through this uh, example of feeding the 5,000, is teaching us five things. Don't waste. Don't waste. And having abundance is no excuse to waste. We must learn the lesson of contentment. And like Paul, even if we need to claim the promise, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he will answer that prayer. And number four, we are to save in order to give for the benefit of others. And number five, no matter what situation you're in, Jesus can still multiply your loaves and fishes. Bring him what you have. And so in conclusion for our morning devotion today, let us once more make that commitment. Lord, all that I have. No matter if it's a lot, no matter if it's a little bit, all that I have is yours. Is that your desire today? Let's raise our hands together to make that commitment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are a God who is still in the business of multiplying the loaves and fishes. And Lord, we have need of that today. Whatever the circumstances, the needs may be in the lives of this congregation, we know you are more than able to supply our lack. May we simply be faithful in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all these things may be added unto us. And may we be like that young lad, willing to give you our whole lunch, even if it's only five barley loaves and two fishes. May we have the heart of surrender that every piece, every fiber of our being, everything that we have is yours. And Lord, may you transform us into your image so that like Jesus, we may constantly be thinking of what we can do for the benefit of others. The talents that you've given to us, may we employ for the service of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus may come soon. And Lord, as we head down from this mountain, we know that there will be temptations. Keep us, Lord. Go with us and help us to remain faithful until the day you return. We pray and ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.